Welcome to the Beauty Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Kopelman, a cosmetic oculoplastic surgeon in New York City. You're going to hear from interesting guests who are authorities in their specialty. We will cover topics on health, beauty, and cosmetic surgery, and you will receive unfiltered, truthful information about all these procedures. Welcome back, uh, Dr. Cohn, for our second part in a three-part series. Uh, today, we're going to discuss uh, PRP and its use in uh, andro- androgenic alopecia, as well as microneedling, and, u- and the use of, with uh, laser resurfacing, as well as scar treatments. So we look forward to hearing uh, your thoughts about these subjects. I want to now segue to um, uh, laser resurfacing in particular because we've been using the term ablative and non-ablative. To me, these terms are a little confusing because I have an an Erbium uh, YAG laser. I've been using it for almost 20 years and uh, a Fraxel laser. First of all, can we define for the audience ablative versus non-ablative? And I'd like to also know the longevity of these lasers and uh, uh, laser treatments. Some people say ablative lasts much longer than non-ablative treatments. First, there, there are different types of laser energy that are delivered. Some that, that penetrate the skin and cause something like coagulation on a target, in this case, water. Um, and there are some that penetrate and hit the skin and affect pigment or affect redness. So those that are not creating a wound and those that are not vaporizing the skin are called non-ablative. And when you when you encounter the skin and you're actually vaporizing, then you're, use, you're using an erbium laser, 2940, or a CO2 laser, 10,600. So those are the ablative lasers. So if, if folks- Those are the wavelengths. So if folks out there want to- you know, the word ablative, substitute vaporizing the skin or substitize, substitute, you know, really, basically, it's just creating a wound. So, but the non-ablative do not create a wound. Okay, well, I see a wound when I use my erbium glass laser. I believe I see a wound. Am I, am I wrong when I say that? I, I have erbium glass as well. You see some redness, but, you know, if histologically, you see a little coagulation zone, a micro... So these microscopic epidermal necrotic debris, but that's not, you know, when, when patients are thinking wound, they're, they're thinking they, they see they see bleeding or they see, you know, something that is significantly swelling and something that's going to take several days to heal. Okay, but now let's go back and talk about erbium ablative versus carbon dioxide uh, ablative lasers. I've noticed that uh, in your office, you primarily have, if I'm, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, an erbium ablative laser you prefer over CO2 ablative. There are times where I like one over the other, but you know, just to, 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 to start with the old discussion about, you know, CO2 versus erbium. And when you're doing resurfacing for really heavy, heavy smokers lines or something like that. So, you know, we, we see a lot of people with sun damage all around the country. And in Colorado, we actually have 320 days of sunshine. We have people who really spend their lives outdoors. They hike, they fish, they ski, they, they do Iron Man or Iron Women, and they're spending tremendous amount of time outside. We see lots of skin cancer here. And, you know, we see the effects of, of the sun on the skin where people have really photo damaged skin. They have etched lines and wrinkles. So if somebody truly has 
significant etched lines around the mouth, something that we typically have called smoker's line. And some of these people may have not even been smokers. It's just that they have enjoyed the outdoors for so many years. You know, first, I think they should see a dermatologist and have a full skin check once a year. Many of these people are fair complected and they've already had precancers or a skin cancer. So sometimes we'll see them, you know, twice a year. If they have a family history of melanoma or a personal history of some type of skin cancer, you know, we see them pretty frequently because, you know, I spend a good part of my time doing Mohs surgery, the microscopic skin cancer surgery. And this is, you know, a, a state where we see a lot of sun damage, Florida, New York, wherever you have beach access, you know, in California, people have a lot of sun damage as well. You mentioned I have a faculty appointment at, at University of California, Irvine, and those patients that we see there, you know, have a tremendous amount of sun damage too. Well, you're at a higher altitude too. You do get about, about six to 10% more UV penetration for every thousand feet. So right now I'm mile high, you know, but when I go up and, and ski over a weekend or something like that, we're at two miles high. So we have to really think about using sunscreen with the right ingredients like zinc and titanium and applying every couple of hours and other sun protective strategies. I usually have zinc sunscreen on and then a face mask balaclava, even on a pretty sunny day. And if I'm sweaty and riding the bumps, then I'll take a break and take my helmet off and, and my balaclava off and go inside. But, you know, it's we, we really go to great lengths to try to protect ourselves. It was funny, this past weekend I was at Miami Cosmetic Surgery and I walked outside um, to get an Uber with Steve Diane, who ran the meeting, and Jay Burns. So we all were going three different directions. Jay was going to his hotel, Steve was going to a coffee shop, and I was actually going back to my hotel and leaving for the airport. We all three called Ubers. I was the only one standing in the shade, and the two of them are, <laughs> are, are directly in the sun. We're about two feet apart. And I finally said, guys, you know, look, you can move over two feet and you can stand right with me. But I, I said, this is a difference between a Durham and a plastics. I would never imagine <laughs> waiting for an Uber for the minutes, sitting in direct sunlight. And in fact, Steve, Diane, and I- Well, that's because you see a lot of cancer all day long, skin cancer. <laughs> Steve, Diane, and I, for many years, we have pictures of he and I in different places where, where I'm literally in the shadow of a building and he's walking <laughs> right outside that. We have one in the beaches of- um, of Grand Cayman, where literally I'm wearing a sun protective hat, a long sleeve UPF shirt, and and very long bathing trunks, and he's wearing like flip flops and a speedo. I mean, that's that's the difference between some plastics in some cases. <laughs> I've, uh, that's great, a great story. So for people who've enjoyed a lot of time outdoors and may or may not have been smokers, when they have very severe etch lines around their mouth. Oftentimes they'll have severe etching around their eyes as well. And you know, some of these people, honestly, people can walk in and, and first of all, many people have misinformation and they think that, oh, if they have some lines on the upper lip, they can use something like botulinum toxin, Botox or Dysport, Xeomin, Juveau, whatever the flavor that you carry in the office. And that's not the case. Those lines are actually etched in the skin. So you can inject a neuromodulator and that's an off-label area. And there's a, a great chapter in my botulinum toxin textbook on, on the perioral area. But we inject it very, very commonly. But that's only to stop the muscle from imprinting those lines further, just like in the crow's feet, just like in the glabella. So there are, in many of these patients, way too many of these lines and wrinkles to get into with a filler. 
So you really have to think about something that can treat the whole field. And if you use a fractional laser, first of all, fractional ablative lasers can give very nice results for acne scars. They can give overall good results for photo rejuvenation. But when it comes to really severe etched lines, like upper lip lines, they're not the treatment of choice in my office. My, my treatment is full field erbium resurfacing. So while I have fractional CO2 and fractional erbium on different devices, and I have the opportunity on one of the devices to use full field CO2, I usually always use full field erbium. And that's because of the downtime is less, correct? It is more effectively absorbed by water and you are able to recognize your endpoint. So with erbium, there is less heat that's generated. You can actually see pinpoint bleeding and that is your endpoint. So when I resurface the area around the mouth and you see these areas of pinpoint bleeding, that's your endpoint. And that is very important because that has a more specific endpoint than full field CO2. And so I use a lot of the Cyton 2940 resurfacing. In fact, we have two of those units in the office. And, you know, you can you can smell that even in a big office of 11,200 square feet, our main office. Like, you, you, you know when that laser is being used, even with a buffalo and another air evacuator and then air evacuating from the ceiling. So we really pick the time of day that we do that for 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 folks, but that is major improvement. I agree with you totally. I don't know if you know this, but I was one of the, the early ado- adopters or uh, of erbium in the United States, and I, I actually published some papers on the erbium. I don't, I don't know. You probably didn't read them, though. <laughs> I may have seen them when I only recognized your first name as being an awesome first name. I mean, I think it's a trade-off. I went towards Erbium because I didn't want this long, uh, prolonged uh, uh, recovery, and I didn't want the hypopigmentation associated with CO2. However, I'm not sure that I get the as long lasting result as I would with a CO2 ablative because, I mean, CO2 ablative goes deeper. The heat goes deeper. You don't you, you don't believe that? I don't. So it depends how many passes you do and what energy. Oh, I do many. All honesty, my erbium heavy resurfacing patients oftentimes have post-inflammatory redness for even a couple of months. So I think there's too many variables to make those conclusions. But Jay Burns in his article does tackle that question about the difference between the penetration. But in terms of more effectively absorbing water, erbium's more effectively absorbing things by about a fold of 16 times. And erbium can actually penetrate deeper uh, overall with less heat. So really, I I think we could have this discussion for a long time, but what it boils down to is safety and efficacy. And with erbium, you are by far less, less, less likely to see the pigment loss, that porcelain color that you were with CO2. And I believe that is because of the erbium. And I believe that's because you can recognize your endpoints. And then in terms of durability, it all boils down to what settings are are you using and how aggressive are you in the first place? And I have great pictures. I mean, I I have great results as well. I'm not saying I don't. And I use erbium and and that's all I have in my office is is erbium. I don't have a CO2. what do you think about shortening the inflammatory stage of this post-treatment? Uh, in other words, after laser, you get this uh, erythema and and uh, uh, inflammatory stage. If you shorten that by steroids or whatever reason, do you think you get less of a result? In other words, is, is it beneficial to have that that prolonged redness? So the prolonged redness is something that we see with heavy erbium resurfacing. 
And it is something that we expect to see. I show my patients my pictures. I don't show them somebody else's pictures published in a paper or some company's brochure. I show them my pictures of patients who had significant etched lines. I show them what the patient looks like right after resurfacing, a couple days later, a week later, two weeks later, a month later. It's it's not until about three months that you see the full degree of improvement from that resurfacing session. And it's usually between the one month and the two months, but sometimes it's between the two month and the three month that that erythema goes away. And I've always been concerned about really treating that erythema too aggressively with topical steroids. Having said that, Mitch Goldman has published an article that shows that it's actually okay and you're probably not interfering with the overall efficacy. However, I'm not sure that I really want to potentially even interfere with things. So I just get patients on what I really think is, is a good course. They understand what they're going to look like. And I tell them what Jay Burns has said for years, that the redness is the highway to, to get to the destination. It's something that we expect. And it's something that for everybody, it's going to go away at a different time. In my personal patient population, I think the people who have have fair-complected skin and they have rosacea and they have more evidence of facial flushing and dilated blood vessels in the central part of their face are the ones that I see with prolonged erythema. I'm talking about eight weeks, in some cases, 10 weeks. But I will say, number one, it goes away. And number two, it's important that people sun protect. And I'm not talking about going to CVS and just grabbing some sunscreen and putting it on once a day. I'm talking about using a zinc sunscreen or a titanium sunscreen that is of sufficient concentration, usually five, six percent more or plus uh, with each of those, and then rubbing it in effectively and applying it every two hours. Ideally, I'd like these people to avoid intense sun exposure in that time frame right afterwards. I had a patient a few years ago that went on a kayak trip, didn't wear sunscreen, wore a hat, but just all that light reflection, she ended up getting a little bit of pigmentation. It was something that we treated A, with sunscreen, B, with some topicals, and C, with some peels. Um, but we do have ways to treat that. I'd like to avoid it. But I, I think in, in my practice, the couple sunscreens that have made a huge difference are the ones that are that are tinted, that have at least six plus percent zinc. And the one that I like to use right now is called Revision True Physical. It's a sunscreen that came out uh, last last spring. It's new in the revision line. It has many different ingredients, including zinc and titanium, but it's what they're calling a five-in-one. So it's a moisturizer, it's a sunscreen, it's a tint, uh, it has some peptides in it. And pe most importantly, people don't mind using it. So the women that use it, they don't mind using it because it's not burning or irritating and it's actually quite elegant and cosmetic. And I, I think that that's, that's a home run for these people because I really feel like they're getting great sun protection and they're able to effectively camouflage that redness. And the only times where that doesn't work is if somebody swims, um, you know, and then some of that comes off. You really have to just underscore the importance of being careful in that several week interval after treatment and maybe swim indoors. And then, um, you know, some of the sweaty sports, somebody plays tennis and, and wipes their face with a sweatband or something like that. They have to be careful to reapply. But we take it pretty seriously. And I think that post-inflammatory erythema is something that we expect. And, you know, from the data at this point, I'm not sure if we if we can conclude that it's absolutely necessary. Um, but nevertheless, I don't usually treat it unless it's really a problem for people.
So if, if you use a pulse dye laser, does that, and you, you abort that redness, is that, do you think that's a negative? I don't think it necessarily is, but I don't tend to do that very often because there there is a potential that it could be, and I just don't want to interfere with the results, and this is something that we expected. But there is bromonidine, you know, these alpha agonists, these topicals, Merveso is one, Rofan is another, where you can topically apply it. And you don't see a great vasoconstriction of the redness, but you do see probably a little bit. So all in all, a little pulse dye laser, a little non-ablative fractional, a little bromonidine or merveso um, or rofade, you know, whatever whatever you use, you can see some improvement with that. And then, you know, if, if all else fails, you can try some topical steroid. But, you know, keep in mind, you may be interfering with the overall eventual result. Do you ever use PRP, platelet-rich plasma, and or growth factors uh, immediately following uh, laser treatment? You could not have asked that at a better time. <laughs> PRP is something that until about September of 2016, I was a very significantly skeptical physician in this regard. It just didn't make a lot of sense that you could draw your blood, spin it down in one of these proprietary units, and then you could take the platelet-rich plasma and then do something with that. And most commonly what we see in dermatology is taking that platelet-rich plasma and injecting it for androgenetic alopecia. So I have some friends who started doing that in some cases at really respected institutions like the Cleveland Clinic, and they actually saw very significant results. And I was starting to do that in September 2016. At this point, I have seen many people who have hair loss, hormonal hair loss, androgenetic hair, uh, hair loss, mostly guys. Um, but it's it's not like extreme cases. There are areas where, you know, they've lost the crown. Um, and I, I can share great photos of, with you of patients that I've treated. And I recently co-authored an article with Deirdre Hooper in The Dermatologist just talking about how we use it for androgenetic alopecia. But I also use it very, very commonly in practice in conjunction with lasers. And Deirdre and I uh, covered that in the article as well. There is some data about using it to try to, uh, and we cite the references, to try to expedite the healing process. There's some indication that it may decrease by about 15% some of the redness, some of the crusting, and some of the pain. So it's very common for me to use it in my practice after heavy resurfacing for people with lines and wrinkles. It's very common for us to use it after fractional resurfacing for people who have sun damage or acne scars. We use it often after bipolar fractional radiofrequency. In some cases, we use it with microneedling in the office. And the whole concept is, you know, is this leading to a synergistic response or is this just helping the recovery um, as some of the data shows? And in both cases, they're both positive cases. So there's many patients that are willing to try. And I think the people who are more willing to try are the people who've heard of this before. So, you know, Colorado being a very outdoors state, many of these people have actually heard of PRP or even used PRP for their original use and the use that it actually has the FDA clearance for, which, which is basically after orthopedic procedures. So many people have heard of it. May, many people are already on board with it and they be more, more likely to use it. And I'll, I'll end with not only do we use it injecting into the scalp. Not only do we topically apply it after some procedures, but there is actually some new data from Murad Alam at Northwestern about injecting it into the face. Now, sometimes people have really overstated this as the ability to, you know, give some sort of uh, facelift type of results. I think that's way, 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 way 
infinitely, exponentially overstated. But I think if if you're talking about a patient who doesn't want to have filler for some other reason, and you may be doing PRP for androgenetic alopecia, and you may be thinking about a focal area that they want to try to inject, you know, sure, try to do that. And Muradolam's study showed that there can be some improvement in specific parameters. Well, nano fat also seems to be catching on as well in terms of injecting it under the skin. How about uh, growth factors? Any any other uh, any other? Uh, there are some people in the past were saying you put these growth factors. I don't know what what's contained in the in the growth factors, but they say they get better results with those. We have a very robust clinical trial unit that I run in our office. Um, it's a separate division called About Skin Research, and we do a lot of clinical research. We do. Um, botulinum toxin research, we do filler research, we do some of these radio frequency devices, um, various types of lasers from, you know, the halo stuff to thulium. And, and then we also do a lot of skincare as well as medical dermatology, uh, topical pro- projects. So I've worked with, and I've done a clinical trial on the Neocutis uh, growth factor line. I think it works well. Um, and, and Michael Gold and I published something several years ago um, using it after, you know, micro laser peels just to try to uh, augment the, the, the healing response. So, you know, typically we, you know, if it's a lighter peel, like a micro laser peel, you can start right away. If it's something that's really heavier, then, then we wait. Um, more recently, I've, I've done a clinical trial on Tensage, which is Biopel's formulation, which is a snail-derived growth factor, and it's not human-derived, such as the SkinCeuticals or the, the Neocutis uh, line. And all these products are actually very good products. We use all of them in our office. The Tensage one is something that's really nice because, um, first of all, they have these little post-procedure ampules. So they come in a 10-pack. So typically when we're doing some resurfacing, we'll have patients get a 10-pack a of these Tensage 40 ampules. It's packed and packed with growth factors. And many people feel like it makes their skin feel better and just overall less discomfort during that healing process. You know, and the data's out. You know, it's very hard to do a split face study because oftentimes when you do a split face study, you have somebody use something on one side of the face and not on the other side. First of all, there can be a bit of a neighboring effect in certain areas along the midline. And then secondly, you know, people are supposed to wash their hands very, very carefully in between applications. I'm not sure everybody follows those instructions. And then third, I think it's very difficult because when people are doing split face studies, by and large, sometimes people pick a favorite. Something may sting and something may feel better. And then they may just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, you know what? I, so there's some bias. In so there. so we, we want to make sure that, you know, split face studies are, are done because they're helpful. But oftentimes in the lateral part of the face, they're probably more helpful. Um, but nevertheless, when they finish the tensage ampules, uh, there's a tensage serum that has hyaluronic acid in it. I usually have patients start that before a heavy procedure um, and continue to use a retinoid. And then when they're able, they use the tensage ampules when they finish a procedure. And then we we actually have them con- go back to the, the serum, the tensage serum, 
and then they also use a, a start a retinoid. And the retinoid we probably don't start for about two weeks later. It really depends when when people's skin starts feeling pretty good and not overly dried out. These are proteins. Do people get sensitized to them? So I have not seen contact sensitization the way that we have seen historically with other products like vitamin E derivatives and those types of things. So these are really elegant products. Uh, that are delivered that usually it's at the point where some of the wound in the skin has already covered up. So it's not, you know, going that deep into the skin. But but you bring up a really good concept there. The the concept of laser-assisted drug delivery, LAD, is is blossoming right now. And there was a there's been articles by Ruiz Rodriguez from 10 years ago advocating doing a laser on the surface of the skin and then doing something like putting photodynamic therapy agent over it, allowing that to penetrate the skin and having an augmented response. And now to the point where, <clears throat> excuse me, at Harvard at Wellman, and then with Moret Hattersall in Copenhagen, they're really at the forefront of laser-assisted drug delivery. And Dr. Hattersall is delivering many different types of, of um, topical products deeply penetrating into the skin in her huge lab in Copenhagen. She also has a joint appointment at, at Mass General in the Wellman Institute of Photomedicine. And they getting better results? Getting better results. And folks here, you know, are doing the same with, with scars, for instance. I know the Miami group has done that, yeah. Jill Weibel has done some really excellent work on using fractional lasers over scars and then drizzling, not injecting, but drizzling over a steroid like Kenalog and then rubbing that in. And that's that's a something that I do every day. We see people who've had uh, breast reconstruction. Uh, I just saw somebody last week. Um, and in terms of that, we use the pulse dye laser for some of the redness. And then we use the fractional lasers to poke little holes and try to break up some of the scars. And then we drizzle over um, some of the steroid, some of the steroid. And then I have my assistant really rub it in into these areas. And that can be very, very effective. And, and Dr. Weibel has published some excellent, uh, articles on that. And then for people who have, uh, tummy tuck or C-section scars that may have gotten thickened, that's ways that we approach them as well. I, I use 5-FU quite a bit. I don't know if you do that. I, I personally use a lot of 5-FU in, in scars that are thicker. Um, and there's been some publications on that at this point of a mix of, of intralesional steroid and 5-FU. And in the rare circumstance where somebody has like a delayed inflammatory reaction to some injectable product, that, that's when I tend to use 5-FU the most, 5-FU with a little bit of intralesional steroid as well. Thank you, Dr. Cohn, for elucidating uh, your thoughts about uh, PRP and scar treatments. We're now going on to the third part in the series on skin pigmentation and how to treat melasma and uh, with lasers and topical medications. The information expressed on the Beauty Doc podcast are the opinions of myself and my guests, and they are not meant to replace a consultation with your doctor or beauty specialist.